0: Psalm 30, Psalm 30, Psalm 30 is actually what they would entitle a lament, which means an expression of challenge and difficulty in life. And, you know, this is an interesting time of the year. You know, this past week, I got an email from a a young, well, not, I guess they're a little younger than me. So everybody's young, right? And uh, anyways, I got to meet them as I was taking some courses last spring. And the Chinese couple. She's actually a pastor. And they emailed me and said, Pastor, we just want you to know that our son was killed tragically. And uh, they invited me to the memorial service. And my heart really went out to them, you know. So that was Thursday morning. By Thursday afternoon, I had her phone call that pastor phoned me and said, you know, our church is in disarray and there's all kinds of difficulties. And would you come and help us walk through this hour of, of challenge in our lives? And so uh, in one day, I already had two crisis situations presented to me, just boom, like that. And so I recognize that, you know, as, as great a season as Christmas is, and it, this is a great season because it's reminding us of the greatest uh, giver, the greatest lover, the greatest one who ever will fill us with hope comes into our world. We're reminded of that at Christmas But it also reminds me of the people this year who lost a loved one, Who is this is the first year they're alone, uh, how painful that really is. And so I know that this is kind of a mixed time, isn't it? Isn't that true? And so let's stand this morning as we read this lament together because what I love about a lament, which is really our expression of of despair, that we can talk to God about it, it always ends on a positive note. It's really amazing how God comes along and... uh, And the 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 psalmist ends up praising God, and I believe that that's the important point. That when we have trouble in our life, that we learn how to praise God, Amen. That we really learn that secret. That's that's the thing I want us to get as a church family. Learn that secret of praising God at all times, and I believe that that praising of God will bring strength into our lives and will sustain us through life's most challenging moments, and most difficult moments. So let's read this lament together, Psalm 30. Uh, we don't have to read the beginning part, the dedication. Let's start with, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may endure for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I call. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. That my heart may sing to you and not be silent, O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Hallelujah. Lord, that is our cry, that we would have a song in our heart and we would continuously be praising your wonderful name, your holy name, your good name, Lord. And I pray today that you would move powerfully in our lives, Lord. I pray especially for those who are walking through a season of difficulty, I pray that you will sustain them, you will comfort them, you will guide them, you will encourage them, Lord. I just thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to a Matthew's Gospel. Remember I said last week, if you are here, that there's two Gospels that really kind of bring out the life of Jesus Uh, birth, and that is Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew's gospel, we find some interesting elements that Luke does not share with us. Urbanologist and pastor Ray Balky and now Ray actually uh, leads a seminary in Seattle. I'm actually a graduate from that seminary. Uh, He says something of the Christmas story that's usually rarely understood or expressed. And he puts it this way. He said, Jesus was actually a Palestinian refugee. And as a matter of fact, Jesus was an asian born baby. we got to you know sometimes as north americans we we think it all centers around north america but the reality is it doesn't do that. and jesus actually becomes an african refugee. the christmas story is about an asian born baby who becomes an international migrant. as a matter of fact half the babies born in the world are born in asia. and jesus actually was one of them. And of half of the 18 million migrants in the world, they're Africans, and Jesus had that experience as well. Twenty percent of the babies in developing nations died the first year from waterborne diseases. Whole villages of babies die before Jesus would even have an opportunity to save the world. Jesus was born in a borrowed barn, buried in a borrowed grave, and experienced homelessness. Isn't that interesting? When you, when you read his story, that's what was happening. The authentic gospel, Ray says, has enormous power for the whole world when we tell it the way it really is. And I think we've kind of dressed up a lot of stuff with tradition. Isn't that true? We've kind of created our own little story, and, and, we, and you know, you know for, for North Americans, you know, we kind of think back, we often see the Christmas story through the lens of little children at Sunday school, you know, walking through a nativity scene struggling to keep their lines. You know, for us, Christmas becomes very sentimental. And yet the first Christmas story was anything but sentimental. And so what I want to try to do today is portray it through the lens of Mary and Joseph that first Christmas morning. I think that's very important we understand what it was really like. And I think when we read the Bible... It connects with us in such a powerful way because we share some of those experiences, maybe not as dramatically or as graphically. Other times we do. Now, as we put aside, as I would say, our Christmas biases, we can see with very little imagination the struggles that Joseph and Mary were experiencing. It's a story, really, of one crisis after another. How many have ever seen in life that uh, you can kind of, there's a season of life and things are going good? And then there are seasons of life when it's just one crisis after another. How many you know what I'm talking about? And maybe some of you are here today, and that's your experience. You're just going one crisis after another. You just go like, wow, is there any end to the crisis in my life? It just seems like it's continuing, and it's, it's overwhelming me. Anybody have that experience? Well, I think we all have at moments in our lives. And yet in each crisis, God is speaking into the human dilemma. And I think uh, as we we take a look at the story, we're going to look at three areas of crisis that we'll all experience at some point in our life. This is not uh, if this will happen to us. It's just a matter of when this will happen to us or it already has happened to us. And maybe some of us are still processing what's happened to us and don't know how to handle it. Or some of us are going... You know, I just need you know the wisdom and the grace to walk through these crises in my life. And I want to take a look at the first one, and it has to do with relational crisis. You know, and I'm not just talking about marital tension here today. I'm talking about all of the difficulties we have with relationships. We can we can never be married. We could be single, but we can still have relational crisis in our lives. You know, it could be with neighbors. You know, how many people have had interesting neighbors living next door to them and made their lives terrible? I've, I've heard some horror stories of bad neighbors. How many have ever heard of some of those? You know, some of you say, I'm experiencing it, Pastor. I know all about that. Or maybe, you know, it's relatives. How many know you can't choose your relatives? You know? Isn't that the truth? And, you know, Christmas time can be a terrible time because relatives are coming over and you just go, the dreaded relatives that are coming over or we're going to their place for Christmas and, and nobody's excited but we're all playing a little game because it's Christmas. You know what I mean? And we're getting together as relatives and we're having, and there's tension in these relationships and everybody knows the reality of it or maybe, you know, it's, you know uh, we work with some fellow employees and life is not sweet, you know, and some of the stuff that's going on there. or maybe our boss is unbearable to work with or maybe there's an employee that you're pulling your hair out no matter what you do. You just can't seem to get this person to do the right thing. We can go on and on and talk about all the relational issues that we battle with. And here in our text, we see at the very beginning of Mary and Joseph's life, it begins with a major complexity. And it's not something that, Either one of them was really trying to create. We know the story. An angel shows up and tells Mary, hey, you're going to be with child. She says, hey, how's that going to happen? I've never, I've never had any sort of relationship with any man. The angel says, listen, this is not of man. This is of God. And the Spirit of God's going to deposit a seed in your womb, and you're going to be pregnant. Now, how would you like to be able to tell your fiancé that you're pregnant? And he knows he's not the dad. How many know that gets a little tricky And, you know, you probably can't use Mary's line, I didn't do anything. You know, that's probably not going to work. You see what I'm saying? This created a little tension in their relationship, and Matthew picks it up here in chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, in other words, before they had sexual relationship, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, Matthew's telling you what's happening. Next verse, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You know, uh, R.T. France, who's a commentator, writes, in Jewish law, betrothal, or engagement, which lasted about one year, was much more than our engagement. It was a binding contract, terminated only by death or by divorce. So this was like as if they were married, but yet they had not come together. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, the man was already the husband, and the woman remained in her father's house until, the, until her engaged husband-to-be would come for her, and that would begin their marriage together. So what he was doing was building and adding a room at his father's house. And once the room was prepared, he would come and get her. And so she was waiting for that day when that room was completed. And how many get already this beautiful illusion that Jesus talks about in John chapter 14 when he's saying to the disciples that he has to leave and he says, I'm going to prepare a room for you you see, remember that beautiful line in John 14.1? That's what he's talking about. He's alluding to this practice. He's basically saying that he is the heavenly bridegroom, and the church is the bride, and that Jesus is preparing a room, and then he will come back and receive the bride and bring the bride to his father's house. It's all part of the 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 the, uh, the culture. And so when they're talking this stuff, these people understand what's going on. The marriage was completed when the husband took the betrothed to his home in a public ceremony. And that was the commencement of their life together. In Old Testament law, the penalty for infidelity was what? Stoning. Now, how many know that's pretty harsh? Man, if we had that penalty today. Whoa. Whoa. That would be heavy-duty stuff, right? Be a lot of dead people, you know? And there's a lot of rocks in Israel. We've been there. I'll tell you. There's no shortage. So I'm just letting you know that's not a good thing. But, they, you know, Moses had actually created, because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus said, the law of divorcement, where a husband could write a letter of divorce. Now, you know, Joseph was actually a righteous man. He didn't want... Mary to be stoned, and at about that time, most of them weren't stoned, but she could have been deeply, you know, disgraced. And so Joseph was trying to do this privately, just divorce her. And uh, you say, well, why didn't Joseph just do the honorable thing and marry her? Well, actually, if you're in Joseph's shoes, you're marrying a girl who's been unfaithful to you. It's not a very good beginning of a marriage, you know, if you think about that, number one. Now, Joseph uh, was not willing to humiliate her, but in this moment, God speaks to Joseph via a dream. And, we, and, and he challenges Joseph about his personal uh, situation here. Because uh, I, I really believe that God wants to speak to us, each and every one of us, in our pain and hurt. How many believe that? God wants to speak into those situations. Now, he may not always tell us what we want to hear, but we can be confident that he'll always tell us what we need to hear. And Sometimes they're different. Sometimes God will say things to us, and we go, that's what I need to do. God will show us and speak into our lives. And God, God spoke to the issue, the heart of the issue when he addressed Joseph's fears. I think many of our decisions are based on our fears. How many think that's, pro- that's true, huh? It's not based on faith. It's based on fear. I mean, we, we act on our fears many times. And God is now speaking to Joseph. And this is what he says to him in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. There's that, one of those fear things. Don't make this decision because you're afraid of the outcome. To take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's a very powerful thing. So not only does Mary have this encounter with an angel, but the same angel, I think, came to Joseph in a dream and told Joseph the same thing. And Joseph knew. He was a God-fearing man. He knew this was the voice of God. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so here's Joseph now hearing God's message. God's challenging him to address his personal fears. And I think many times at the heart of marital tensions is, is actually the heart of broken relationships as we've been hurt and we're afraid to be hurt again. Isn't that the truth? Come on now, we're hurt, and so we want to protect ourselves. And so we begin to insulate ourselves so that we will never be hurt again. Come on now. And what we do is we build up barriers so that no one's going to ever do damage to us like that person did again. We'll never let anybody get that close again. We'll never allow that to happen to ourselves. But in the process of doing that, our hearts get hard. We're protecting ourselves. Folks, there's a different way. That's how, that's how culture handles it. Here's a different way. We learn to trust God. We learn to forgive. We learn to be vulnerable. We learn to be tender. Because, you know, it gets pretty lonely when you build a wall around your soul. We do. We get very... And that's what happens. We get lonely there because, you know... And we, and we become emotionally detached, which is not a healthy thing. And so there's a lot of lonely people walking around. We're not allowing anybody to get close into our lives. Can I just say this, that every relationship is a risk, number one. Number two, that in every relationship you will experience pain because there's pain in love. There's pain in love. Do you know that? The moment you start loving, you open yourself to pain. Pain. You know, and even if you have a phenomenal marriage, you know, there could be one day when God takes that person home and then you're alone. See, you're going to still have pain. We, you know, we, we're trying to avoid pain. But often in avoidance, we don't have any gain in our life. We don't grow as a person. We don't experience the richness of what love really brings into our lives. It's very important. So usually... Uh, at the heart I just say we've been hurt and are afraid to hurt again so we insulate ourselves and we shut people out and the problem is we become lonely and we need to move beyond personal fears what's our focus when we're hurt where's our focus when we're hurt on ourselves and on our pain isn't that true that's where our focus is where do you think God wants our focus to be? On Him, on trust, on love, on forgiveness. How many see that's a little different than where a lot of people are focusing? And so, you know, if, if I went to the mall this week and took a little microphone, said I was, you know, working with a group of psychologists, we're just talking and doing a survey, and just say, do you have any pain in your life? What do you think the average person's going to say to me? Absolutely. You know, and what, where's your pain level? And go one to ten, where's it at? Zero being, one being very low, and ten being very high. What do you think is going to happen? How many eight, nines, and tens am I going to hear? A lot. And if they're really vulnerable, they're going to open up, and I'm going to hear all kinds of stuff if I was to do that. Isn't that true? God was challenging Joseph to focus on doing the right thing, to trust God to work it out. And so often when we're trying to figure it out, you know what? We never do figure it out. We need to learn to trust God. That's a huge, big step for most of us because we have to trust someone. We have to let go and trust God. I think the need in resolving marital conflict and tension is that each person needs to hear a word from God. Mary heard a word from God. Joseph heard a word from God. That's why they, they could make that relationship work. You know, it's interesting, uh, in Woebegone Boy, Garrison Keller tells the fanciful tale of John Tollefson. John leaves Minnesota to move to New York and make a life from himself far from Lake Woebegone. And although the story is spun upon Keller's marvelous imagination, it contains gems of insights. For example, John calls home and tells his parents about something Uh, his girlfriend had said, and this is what she said to him, there's no such thing as a successful marriage. There are only marriages that give up and marriages that keep on trying. That's the only difference. Interesting statement. What does she mean by that? Well, she means that it's work. And we have to make choices all along the journey. And if you've been married for any number of years, you're going to have to exercise the decision to continually work at your relationship, continually forgive. Isn't that true? You know, we have a culture that's a little bit short on some of these things. Uh, Philip Yancey, after 25 years of being married, wrote that he was reflecting on his marriage. And what he wanted, and, and, and he says before marriage, each instinctively strives to become what the other person wants. We're trying to be attractive. We're trying to have someone come into our life. And so, you know, the young woman wants to look desirous and wants to be, you know, attentive and listen and caring. Young man wants to take an interest in what the young woman is interested in. But it's interesting after we get married how often selfishness takes over and we begin to polarize back to where we were, which isn't working at trying to, you know, find out where the other person is coming at and where their needs are at. But he said in his experience, this is his experience, he said, you know, after marriage, um, after many years, he said, if you've been married a long time, eventually there's a subtle change in your marriage. And you begin to realize it's not about what you want, about what you need. As a matter of fact, I think healthy people already understand this. When we're healthy, we realize that our needs are met by God. And I'm going to just, I've said this many times, but I'm going to say it again because I think this is so true. If you're looking for a human being to meet your needs, get ready to be continuously disappointed. There is no human being that can meet our needs. Our needs are too great for that. Your need and my need is so great. We need to be loved unconditionally. There's only one person that can do that, and that's God himself. And the great emptiness and void in your life is really a desire for God. You need to understand that. And when you begin to put God first and begin to pursue him and allow him to meet the emptiness in your own soul, then when you come into a relationship with someone, you can offer them something. You see, it's not about you getting something because that's what happens when we're immature. We have these needs in our lives that we think this person's going to meet. But the reality is when we finally grow up, we realize that God is meeting my needs and now I can actually minister to someone else and minister into their lives. Okay? And this is a little tip. This isn't even in my notes. This is a freebie. You know, don't marry somebody who's a very needy person. Try not to do that. You don't want the person you're married to to be your mission field. You want the person you're marrying to be a co missionary with you, ministering to the world together. Okay? So, the healthiest person you can find, that's a good thing to do. You know, try to marry a healthy person. You go, well, now nah, it's too late for me, Pastor. I'm already married, and I'm already married to an unhealthy person. Well, then, you know what? You better really connect to God. Really have your needs met by God, and you're going to be ministering the rest of your life to your spouse and to other people. And it's not the end of the world. You're going to grow like crazy. It's getting really quiet in here. I must be talking to people that this is really relating to somehow. But I I think this is so important. So I always tell young people, marry healthy people. But no matter how healthy that person is, they're going to still be needy. And there's going to be moments of misunderstanding. And there's going to be moments that you're going to hurt each other. And that's just the way it works. And Mary and Joseph, this beautiful couple, had the problem right off at the beginning. How do you like that? How would you like to start your marriage off? Whoops, I'm pregnant, but you ain't the dad. Whoops, we got to get out of town because, you know, we've been ordered out of town. And, you know, they get, you know, the baby Jesus is born in Bethlehem to fulfill the Word of God. But that sure wasn't easy on Mary and Joseph. How would you like to travel down to Calgary walking, pulling a donkey? You know, nine months pregnant. You know, that's not a fun experience. How many say that's not fun? And so a lot of times, I I just get a bang out of people and Christians say to me, oh, God wants me to be happy. Does he really? (laughs) I don't know if that's not making me happy, pulling some donkey down the road for 90 miles or 150K. You know, that's a long ways. With a nine-month pregnant woman? How many know that's not a happy experience? And when you show up, there's no room to stay. And there's nobody to help your wife out when she's delivering the baby. That's not a happy experience. So what is God interested in anyways? He's interested in making you and I more like Him. He's interested in making you and I become like Him, to be conformed into His image, to become Holy. That's what we've been taught for a whole semester, and I actually believe that's the truth. That's what the Bible teaches. You know? And so when people come to my office going, Well, you know, Pastor, God really wants me to be happy, they're talking to the wrong person. I go, Really? Show me. I think we are happy when we do God's will, ultimately, not initially. How many can say that's probably true? Initially, I may not always be happy with what God's asking me to do, but ultimately when I've done it and I've obeyed God, I can say I'm happy as the end result. True. It is true. Those are the happy people. And the people that take the shortcuts and do their own thing and think they're going to be happy end up with a lot of regret in their life. And that's the truth as well. You know, one of the issues in relational crisis is to overcome our fears by placing our trust in God and obeying what he says. That's the key. Do what God tells you to do. Yeah, but I don't feel like it. So what? You know, how many know the right thing? You may feel like doing it. Other times you may not feel like doing it. True? True. But in the end, you'll be happy you did it, I can guarantee you. Let me move on to the second crisis that challenges our lives. And it's not just relational in nature. I think relational in nature is the hardest one, by the way. I think when you're having relational difficulties, that's the most painful one. But here's one that we all can identify with, financial in nature. It doesn't take long in the journey of life and you discover it's expensive to live. How many figured that out? You know. You go on your own. You find out, wow, it takes money to operate. Right? Wow, it's expensive. It's amazing. Uh, we're forced to work in order to eat. And when we're single, we're struggling paying for it all. And then when we get married, we really struggle as needs and values need to be sorted out. Because how many know you got two people with two different sets of values trying to figure out how to spend it, how to save it, how to fight over it? Right? Come on now. Well, Having just dealt with the relational issue, Matthew moves on to the second issues I think that many couples struggle with. It's the issue of finances. How many people struggle over this issue? And man, when it comes to Christmas time, that's when it really starts showing up, right? Because everybody's on a budget and maybe the budget's getting a little tight. And then with all the expectations that people have over Christmas, it just creates more stress in the financial area. Isn't that a good message to be talking about at Christmas time? Yeah, I think it's great. I think a lot of marriages end over conflicts generated by financial pressures. You know, financial pressures can be a real issue. You know, in a recent survey of Americans, and I think Canadians are probably along the same lines, 39% stated that financial pressures were a real issue in their life. Well, you know, that's four out of every ten people. That's a lot of people having struggles over finances and having tensions in their marriages as a result of that. How many know making an unwanted trip to pay taxes to an oppressive government certainly was a strain on a new couple's budget? That's Mary and Joseph. You know, they have to travel down there, but that's nothing. When they get down there, they start hanging out, babies born in Bethlehem, and uh, eventually, a couple of years go by, and we know the story. Three guys from the east show up, and they pop into King Herod to find out where the king of the Jews was born. You know? We saw a star in the east. And so they show up, and Herod gets threatened by that and tries to figure out you know, who it is and tells him to go look for the kid you know, and goes to the scribes and they, because they've lost the sense of direction. And they go back to the word of God, and it says, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's only about a five-minute walk from Jerusalem, and so they head out over to Bethlehem, and while they're heading there, there's a star that appears over a house, and so the three guys show up, and they give gifts, nice gifts, you know, things like gold. How many know gold's worth a little bit? I think it's worth about, what, $1,400 an ounce or something? It was always a precious commodity, and so it was worth a lot, and they show up giving these expensive gifts, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, very expensive gifts to the family, now you say, why did God bless this, you know, probably middle class, carpenter, family, struggling to make ends meet kind of a couple? Why did he give them these gifts? Because God knew what was about to happen. And what was about to happen? Herod was going to kill this kid. And so he found out about the time the child was born when they first saw the star. So he figures up every kid two and under is going to be taken out. And Matthew tells us that Joseph was warned in a dream that this was about to happen. It says, uh, verse 10 and 11, uh, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. Notice they didn't come to the stable. They came to a house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. Uh, And so... I believe that the reason why God did that was to provide them the resources to leave town. I mean, no relocating costs money. You know, it sure does, doesn't it? And so they had to move to Egypt. And how were they going to be sustained in a foreign country? So there were provisions given. Matthew Henry says uh, he, he finds in them a seasonable relief to Joseph in their poverty. I believe God certainly has a provision for Joseph and Mary, those gifts paying for their upcoming expenses, you know, and you may be thinking, well, yeah, well, that's great. I'm still waiting for my ship to arrive too. Where are the three wise guys from the east, right, bringing all that resource? Uh, The problem with many of us is that we don't realize what we already have. There's our biggest problem. Let me just remind us. You know, there's a story told of a young man by the name of Danny Simpson, and If he had known more about the gun he had in his hand, he probably wouldn't have done what he did. But he decided, 1990, he needed money, and he decided to rob a bank in Ottawa. And as a 20- or 24-year-old, Danny ended up getting caught and going to jail, and he was arrested for stealing $6,000 from the bank and sent six years to prison for that. He had used a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic, which turned out to be an antique which when they was first made by the Ross Rifle Company in 1918, and the pistol was worth $100,000. So here's a guy robbing a bank with a gun that's worth a lot more than the money he took. Isn't that amazing? Now, I think there's a little irony in all of this because a lot of times in our lives, we probably have a lot more than we realize And we just don't understand what we actually have. It's true. Do you know, as a child of God, think about what you've got going. You know, it's not about how much finances we have. I think so often we tend to look to human resources and we'd rather turn to ourselves and and and, and in our financial challenges than to God. And many times we decide... Ourselves and deceive ourselves into believing that what we want or what we need is actually a symptom of making, of masking, sorry, our greater need for God himself. We think things will somehow make things work out. You know, sometimes, uh, let me just talk about Christmas for a minute. I think a lot of times we think Christmas is about family, food, and the gifts. Come on now. There's a lot of pressure. And what I'm noticing more and more as I'm getting older, you know, why don't we just simplify things? Why don't we just make it simpler? Why does Christmas have to be so extravagant and so lavish? You know, you you listen to some of these, uh, you know, the advertisements. I mean, they're talking about giving cars to your kids, and I'm going, this is nuts. Why would you do that? You know, See, we think getting a lavish gift is an expression of love. But then we'll spend the whole next six months away from home trying to earn the money to pay back for the six, you know, for the gift we gave. Does that make any sort of sense? Doesn't it make a lot more sense to be focusing in on the people themselves and zeroing in where they're at emotionally, mentally? You're there spiritually for them? You know, things are not going to make people happy. I, I keep saying this. Um, You know, but I think our culture has extolled a vision of what life ought to be like, and it's primarily an economic vision. How many think that's true? As a matter of fact, our society is predicated by the advertising industry telling us what we need. And I'm going to suggest to you, we probably don't need most of what they're telling us. I think one of the great lessons of life that most of us need to learn is one of simplicity, which, by the way, is a spiritual discipline. That is a cultural discipline. Countercultural concept that we need to simplify. I'm going to suggest to you today that if you will learn this, you'll be happier. And I have a point. I'm going to, it's getting here. John Rosemont, he's, he's kind of a, a funny national syndicate columnist and also a family psychologist, likes to take unusual inf- informal polls of parents. And whenever he's in a foreign culture, he'll ask parents, do your kids complain about being bored? And you, without exception... He's always been told no outside of North America. In fact, parents in other cultures look at him with incredulity, as if to say boredom and kids don't go together. Rosemont also likes to question parents who raised their kids way back in the 1940s and 1950s. And he said, when you raised your kids back then, did you hear them complain about boredom? And the answer was rarely. In another one of his little surveys, Rosemont asked middle-aged parents, how many toys did you have growing up? And the answer ranged from zero to ten. And most of these folks responded with toys. Man, I can still remember my mother. We had cardboard boxes. We had imagination. We had to figure it out. Okay? So all of a sudden you have these people, highly imaginative, playing. I mean, I can remember in our neighborhood playing kick the can. You get a can... An empty can, you set it up and you play the game in the neighborhood. Everybody goes and hides and somebody sits on the can and then they, you know, they get up and they go out and look for the kids and you have to run and kick the can before the person that's looking for you does. You know, and we had a lot of fun. You could play for hours with this. This isn't just a can. You know, something that's been utilized, used, and it's good for garbage. And you're using this thing. But listen to this one. You're going to love this. In contrast, Rosemont says the typical American, I'd say Canadian, thats the same, child of five years of age has accumulated 250 toys. Now since five-year-olds have only lived 260 weeks, they're apparently accumulating one toy per week. And if you ask them, most of them are bored. What's the premise? Things... Don't make people happy. We're just bored. We're bored. I mean, now the toys have to be bigger, faster, more dynamic, more expensive. Who's winning? Merchants, the advertising industry. Come on now. Not making us any happier, and meanwhile, we're working harder, we're spending more, we're in further in debt, there's more tension. Just making a point. No contentment comes from within. It's an internal disposition, and we know it. We just don't live as if we know it. Isn't that true? Wow. You know, I'm going to just say this. When I first got married, I was a Bible college student. We had very little income. I can still remember the first... We got married on December the 16th. Tuesday is my anniversary. I'll be married 36 years. So, yeah, thank you. We're both in Bible college full-time. We have no money. We're both working. And our wedding cost with one of her friend's ring cost. The whole wedding cost that. But you know what I liked about our wedding? My church family decorated the church because they usually did every year. The sanctuary was all decorated in certain colors. They said, what's your colors for your wedding? So Patty told them. They said, good. We're bored of green and red anyways. We're going to go with your colors. They decorated the entire sanctuary in their colors. Thank you, church family. Now, that was so meaningful that our church family did that for us. Just to, show, just to give you a little sense. But, you know, how many know December 16th to December 25th? There's only about nine days in there. So we didn't have any money left over. So I needed shoes for work, and she needed a sweater for work. And guess what we got each other for Christmas? I got shoes, and she got a sweater. And you know what? We had just enough money to scrape and buy a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Now, how many know what a Charlie Brown Christmas tree is? It's the tree that nobody wants on the lot. It's, you know, you come at the last minute and the guy doesn't want to mess with it and he goes, for a couple bucks, I'll give it to you. And usually that tree doesn't look good. I'm just going to tell you that right now, but it has a lot of character. And we had a Charlie Brown Christmas tree and I worked in a restaurant and we got a five pound, you know, gallon you know for mayonnaise buckets you know all the stuff they use in the commercial kitchens i said hey would would you guys let me have one of these yeah go ahead paul take one you know so i took one i filled it with dirt and we stuck boom, the charlie brown christmas tree in a white bucket you know and that was our christmas you know what it was an awesome christmas you know isn't that great see we think we need a whole bunch of stuff hey i just said hey we have each other that's what matters That's the point. If you got each other, you got everything. Am I helping some of you guys to just make this a lot simpler? Because what I'm getting more and more concerned about is that every December, we get too busy. Parties, gifts, shopping. I'm not saying don't go to parties. I'm not saying don't shop. I'm just saying bring it down a notch, you know, and put Christ at the center of Christmas. That's why we're celebrating it. You know, you think it was our birthday and not his birthday. Let me move on to the last area of crisis. Um, and it's the circumstantial pressures. Day-to-day elements with a few twists here and there to keep us on our knees, looking to God. Things beyond our ability and resources. The secret of the Christian life is a life of continued dependence on God. How many, I'm going to help you out. You know what? If you think things are going to get easier, they never will. If you think you're gonna finally arrive, you never will. Get that out of your head. Begin to learn that enjoy every day as a gift from God. There'll always be a new challenge, a new circumstance, a new crisis, a new difficulty. Pastor, you're bumming me out. No, I'm giving you a reality check. Why does God allow suffering and sorrow in our world? Well, because we sin as human beings. It impacts our culture, and we're affected by it, but there's a good byproduct of it. What's that? It puts us on our knees looking to God. And that's the healthiest way to live. Okay? Is this good? I'm just trying to explain it to you. Live simply. (laughs) Learn to trust God. You know, in Joseph and Mary's case, long trek expectant wife, lack of adequate accommodations, giving birth to your first child away from family and friends. Later they discover their child's at risk from an insecure leader, his life's in jeopardy. How many couples have struggled with sick children or an accident occurs that changed the entire direction of your life or you lose a loved one? You know, what do you do in all those situations? Well, you need to know God hasn't abandoned you. And I want to tell you the goodness of God in Mary's story. Look what happens in Luke chapter 2 and verse 16. On the the day that she had this baby, some shepherds show up. Total strangers, right? It says, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. And while they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary did what? She treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. You know, Mary, God says, you know what I'm going to do for you, Mary? I'm going to show you that I have not forgotten you. I do care about you. And he sent strangers to bring an amazing word. Word of encouragement in a difficult and painful time. How many have ever had someone that you didn't know, didn't know your situation, speak exactly into your situation, bring hope, encouragement. Isn't that a God thing when that happens, you know? Or, you know, you even come to church. Sometimes people have said, I've come to church today. I couldn't believe it. It was like God talking right to me. He's speaking right into my situation. That's God. He does that for us, doesn't He? And then He gives Joseph a dream warning, warning him of an impending danger to the life of his child. God was protecting them. God was providing for them. God sent wise men to supply provisions to relocate into a foreign country. He said, so, well, why didn't God just not allow somebody as bad as Herod to become king? See, that's how we think. We want to control life completely. We want everything to work out. We don't want to hear about any problems, right? Come on now. And what I'm getting more and more from our culture is God's being blamed for every bad thing that's happening in the world. And we can't even see the goodness of God that in spite of human will. By the way, did God create us like himself? We are made in the image of God. God wants to restore that image into our lives. So he's given us a will. But we choose not to obey God so we have negative consequences. But God in his goodness continually shows us his mercy by working in spite of all of our nonsense. I think God's pretty good send shepherds sends wise men. how many think you how many are getting kind of impressed with god in the story he's just kind of constantly doing what needs to be done just at the right moment even though there are some challenge and some difficulties god is always coming through in those moments how many see that And you know, I've been a Christian now for almost 40 years, and I can honestly say this to you, God does not, you know, make my life smooth sailing every single day. It's not like there's no difficulties or no challenges, but by the way, you grow through those experiences. But what I notice is, as you're depending on God day by day, God sends the right words, the right provision, the right protection, the right this and the right that, just at the right time. I go, wow, I'm impressed with God. Think about this one text. I'm, I'm going to move to the end of the book. Because how many know the last book of the Bible says we win, right? It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What What is this verse really saying? It says simply this. Number one, God loves us. And all the good things that are happening in our lives are coming from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And why is God doing this for us? Because he loves you. And I think the greatest need in our lives is we got to stop focusing on our problems and focusing on what, who God is, how good God is, how loving God is, how kind God is, and begin to focus there. And I think what will happen is it will change the, the whole direction and understanding of your life. It'll change you. When you know you are deeply loved, you can handle a lot of crazy things. When you know that everything is working for a good purpose in your life, you can handle it. I don't believe that God allows any stupid thing to come into my life, any difficult thing to come in my life without a purpose for it. And I know ultimately that purpose is to help me to become more like him. And I'm going to begin to see him working in those situations. Isn't that awesome? And the people around us, you know, it's not like Christians. Once you become a Christian, you get zapped, and no problems ever touch your life from that moment. You know, you're know, you're like Teflon. Nothing touches you. See, that's what I think a lot of us think Christianity is. We think we're supposed to be Teflon. And I'm saying, no, that's not what it's about at all. I'm saying that even when the things happen to us, God is there making the provisions, watching over our lives, expressing his love to us in every one of those situations. Hallelujah. In every situation, God made a way through the pressure and the crisis of life for Joseph and Mary. And so as we realize that this morning, we can be assured he will make a way for us. Maybe you're here today. Let's stand. Maybe you're here today. Say, you know, Pastor, there's so much going on in my life right now. You have no idea. All I know is our lives are not immune to trouble. So I'm not surprised. You know, I'm going, okay, I'm going to preach on having problems this morning. I f- moved my little microphone, and the lo- thing snapped. Yeah, you know, I go... It's too funny because Darren comes. We've got this new one, Pastor, you can just wear over a year. I go, why do we need that? The old one's working fine, Darren. Spoke too soon. He says, yeah, but it's, the guy looked at it. It's getting very weak, Pastor, because we have to keep adjusting it to our ear. This morning, I just went like this. and went, donk. I go, okay, God, you are too funny. I won't even go into how the printer didn't work this morning. And all the nut- crazy nutty things that happened this morning, I go, I already know what this is about. You're already showing me. Yes, this is the way life is, Paul. I go, yeah, I know, Lord. But you know what? We got through the service. Praise God. There was a provision. Yay. You know, it was printed at the church, got the different microphone. That Nathan, he was like looking through the drawer. I don't even know if we've got one. Oh, here's one. I said, Great, we're using it. You know, it works, right? If I have to, I use a handheld. It's all gonna work out, folks. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Don't sweat it. What a stress battle. Oh, we got so and coming over this Christmas. Oh, I can hardly take it. You know. I'm gonna buy a gift for slow-and-so and so they have got everything. So give them a little card. This is for the gift to the person who gets everything and has everything. Here's the card. It says, I love you anyways. That's it. Come on, be creative, guys. You know, make something up with your own hands. Be creative. Don't get into all kinds of harm. Keep it simple. Amen. Let's make this year about Jesus. Amen. That's what it's supposed to be. Whatever he had bowed this morning, come in here. And say, you know, Pastor, this was so crazy today. What you're talking about, but you know what? God spoke into my heart today. I recognize, you know what? I've allowed the pressures, difficulties, challenges, the stresses. I've allowed all these other things to rob me of the joy. Christ. he that's you good this morning, I want to pray with you. You just pray with God, you never everything in prayer. I want to get it back to work. I want to get it back to work about Christ first. It's not about all these other things. You know, maybe you've been damaged. You've been hurt. You've been <clears throat> broken by relationship. And you're here today and you're just saying, you know what, I just need to receive up and still here for us maybe you're here today you don't know Jesus Christ if you're saved, but as you're listening to this going, you know what if this was Christianity this is real reality I need this kind of